Good morning, church. I love seeing all the families together. I love seeing all the red. I forgot about that this morning. I missed that memo. But it's good to see you. Merry Christmas. Let's go to our Lord in prayer before we open up his word this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning, this morning of joy. We celebrate the joy of the world that you sent your son. We celebrate the joy of the world that you are coming again. And Father, we thank you for this incredible gift you've given us, that at Christmas time we can focus on the majesty, the wonder, the awe, the beauty, the transcendence of the fact that the God of the universe became a child, became a baby, in swaddling clothes, in a manger, in the middle of nowhere, all because you loved us. So, Father, this morning I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that the message of the Bible would be clear to us, that you'd change our hearts, that you'd grow our affection for you, our desire for you, and that we could truly celebrate and say that this is a very merry time and a merry Christmas indeed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With Christmas being six days out, it seems like everywhere you go, you hear Christmas music. In the stores, in the malls, if you're not doing physical shopping, online, on Amazon, on YouTube commercials, in your dentist's office, in elevators, in waiting rooms, Christmas music is everywhere. And it tends to be the same songs we hear year after year. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> There's Christmas songs that we all love. We all personally have our own favorites and those that we don't like too much. I love songs like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Oh Holy Night, especially when you get somebody that can hit that high note. Really makes you fall on your knees in wonder. When they can't, you fall on your knees in agony. I love joy to the world. But then there's songs that I'm not the biggest fan of. In fact, my least favorite Christmas song is the song Christmas Shoes. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's a newer song. They made it in a movie. Don't ever listen to it, watch it. It's just manufactured to try to get you super emotional and make you cry and cheesiness like that. And I bring this up because there was an interesting study that was released recently. For a long time, they've studied the effect that music has on people. And music actually has a pretty big effect on our behavior and our emotions. There's a field known as music therapy. And so what do you think would happen when you're surrounded by the continuous music of Christmas, of Christmas joy and Christmas cheer? Well, a British psychologist found out that can actually be harmful to people's mental health. <laughs> Not what we'd expect. And the reason it can be harmful to your mental health is because all the day, everywhere you go, you're hearing about your to-do list, about things you got to accomplish, about preparing this big meal, about having this huge family gathering. It's like an audiobook of someone reading your to-do list and reminding you constantly of all the things that you still have to do. And it brings up the fact that Christmas may be the most wonderful time of the year, but a lot of times it feels like the most busy time of the year. So much to do. Because right after Thanksgiving, you're running to the stores to get that new Star Wars Lego set, to get that VR headset, 
to get the Barbie dream house. On top of that, we have office meetings, work Christmas parties, friends Christmas parties, church Christmas parties, parties on parties on parties. If you're in business, the Christmas time tends to be the busiest time of the year. People are out buying things. On all that, we have our regular chores and kids' sports and responsibilities. And then we actually have to plan for Christmas, for the meal, for the day, the travel plans, who's bringing what. And the fact is, we can drive ourselves to the brink of insanity, like Clark Griswold trying to have that perfect family Christmas. You know, at its core, if you peel back all the layers behind the busyness of Christmas, it really is the fact that we're trying to capture this wonder, this awe that seems to come with the Christmas season. As Christians, we understand it. It's the fact that God has become man, that Jesus has been born. But even in the wider culture, there's the spirit of Christmas, the magic of Christmas. We all seem to recognize that something is special about this season. And yet that doesn't stop the fact that it's busy, that we have plans. And if we're not careful, we can just blow through the Christmas season. It can be the most trivial, the most shallow, the quickest time of the year. So this morning, when we're six days away from Christmas, I want to remind you of three truths that can refresh us and help us really capture that wonder and awe that Christmas time is all about. Three truths that are kind of general givens in our world that actually are more true than we realize. So turn with me to the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. And we'll see these three truths to refresh us during a busy Christmas season. John 1. I'll start in verse 1 of the ESV translation, if you want the exact one I'm using. You can follow along with me. The Word of God says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the first truth we learn about Christmas is that Christmas takes planning. Christmas takes planning. So in John's gospel, in verse 1, he uses this phrase that rings in a lot of his readers' ears, in the beginning. And see, we have four accounts in the Bible of the life of Jesus. And some people say, why do you need four? Why can't we just have one thorough story? And in the Bible, we have four presentations of Jesus' life from four different perspectives, four different guys writing to four different main audiences. In Matthew... Matthew wrote mainly to the Jewish readers. That's why he starts off his gospel showing how Jesus is in the family line of the Jewish Messiah. Mark jumps right into the action. He jumps right into it because he's writing primarily to Gentiles. Luke is a doctor. He's thorough. He's chronological. He starts before Mary was even pregnant 
But John has something unique to tell us. John goes back, not just to the beginning of when Mary was pregnant, not just to the beginning of the Jewish expectations, but to the beginning of time. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, the beginning of all things. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. Was the Word. Now, this is a huge, important phrase in the Gospel of John. The logos, the Word. And it's a tricky phrase because it meant so many different things to so many different people back then. It meant this to the Greeks and this to the Jews and this to the Romans and this to these people and this to that. There's so many different backgrounds to the Word that if you're due to study on this, you can get confused with all of the information. And so we want to look at what does the word mean in the Bible? Well, going back to Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God speaks and the world, the word, world is made. God's word is a creative power. He speaks things into existence. Throughout the Old Testament, God speaks and reveals himself. When we speak, we reveal a thought, it's self-expression. God's word expresses who he is. God's word is power, it judges and delivers. God speaks through his prophets. So throughout the Old Testament, this word has become personified. It's given human attributes to be God's creative power. And we learn later on in the Gospel of John in verse 14 that this word is a title given to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate expression, self-expression of God. So in the beginning was the word, this divine power, this self-expression of God, Jesus. And then we learn a couple things about the word. It says the word was with God, with God. And that's so important. It has such big implications if the word is with God, that means they're not the same person. There's a little distinction here. But yet the word is uncreated. It's been there since the very beginning of time. And so we might read that and think, okay, it's uncreated. It's with God. Maybe it's God's partner. Maybe it's something like God. Maybe it's another God. But John sets us straight. He said the word was with God, so there's a distinction. But the word was God. Not like God, so they're kind of similar. Not a different God. He was God. And so this is huge for us as Christians. This is the foundation of the Trinity. There's one God and two persons. Later on, we'll see the Holy Spirit as well. So John gives us a lot there in verse 1, and he kind of reiterates in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus was God's creative power. God created the world through Jesus. But all of a sudden in verse 5, the plot thickens. There's a little wrinkle. It says the light shines in the darkness. And again, if we're thinking of creation, okay, that makes sense. God created light. He created night and day. He separates the light from the darkness. Okay. But then it says in the darkness has not overcome it. Overcome it. That word means to grasp and to try to overthrow. Some translations may say comprehend, but that's not the best way to translate this. And so we get a little 
battle here, a struggle. There's something going on. And we know throughout John that darkness is thematic. It's symbolic for evil. And it's trying to conquer, overcome, grasp, overthrow Jesus and the light. So there's a battle. There's a struggle. And we learn that Christmas is about war. <laughs> Go ahead and give that answer to somebody this week. If they ask you, hey, what's Christmas about? It's about war. <laughs> See how they react to that. But we learn that there's this struggle, this battle, and Christmas is God's act of war on sin. God's act of war against the evil in our world. And so as you're going about formulating your Christmas plans, writing a list of grocery store items to get, of what you're bringing to the event, while you're planning on how to get to your family's house, when you're going to leave, how far you have to drive, when to get to the airport, did you get the right tickets, when you're planning on what gifts you need to buy and what gifts you're going to give, and you can get all caught up in the hecticness of that. Remember that Christmas has actually always been about planning. It takes planning. It's been God's plan since the beginning when sin tried to overthrow God and what he was doing, that he planned Christmas, his act of war against sin. And find that awe and that wonder that since the first day on the calendar, since the second hand began ticking on the clock, Christmas has been planned. The second truth that we learn about Christmas is that Christmas is about presence. Christmas is about presence, and it's important how you spell that. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E -E. It's about presence. Look with me in verse 14. In verse 14, the Gospel of John, it says, And the Word, the one who is uncreated, who has always existed, who is with God, who is God himself, became flesh. Became flesh. And this would be shocking to people hearing it. Because John isn't ambiguous. He uses the word sarks. That's the most earthy, gritty term you can use for flesh. It's actually offensive almost back then. Because in that world, the body is bad, the spirit is good. Material bad, immaterial good. We got to transcend our physical world and get to some higher level of spiritual existence. But John says the exact opposite of the cultural ethos of that day. He says that God, the ultimate spiritual good, became man, became physical, became gritty, put on skin. That would seem crazy back then. And the next phrase also is shocking, especially to the Jewish audience. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt was the word used for the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so to think of the history there, all throughout the nation of Israel, God dwelt with them in various forms, in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, in the temple. This is where God's presence was among the people. And in the temple, in the holiest of holies, was his Shekinah glory, his very presence. Only one person could enter that area. But John says in verse 14 that Jesus 
dwells. He tabernacles among us. Jesus is the ultimate temple because now God is in human form and his Shekinah glory is there. It says we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And this is the miracle of Christmas, that God has become a man, that in that Bethlehem manger, that baby is the God who created the stars, created the cosmos. He created Jupiter, Mars, Pluto, if you still think that's a planet. He created the oceans, the Grand Canyon. He knows every number of sand on the seashore. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And now he's a baby. He can't even talk. He's dependent on his mother. And he's going to experience something new. You know, Jesus, the Word, was always with God. They had a perfect relationship. He always obeyed and did God's will. But here on earth, obeying God will make him suffer. He's never experienced suffering when he's in the Trinitarian relationships there. He'll experience agony and suffering for his obedience for the first time. And sometimes we have heard this so many times and we're so familiar with this verse and this phrase that it loses its luster. You know, like Christians, we believe that Jesus is one person with two natures, divinity and humanity. And because he has a human nature that doesn't make him less than God, he's 100% both. But sometimes we treat Jesus like he's God and just has this human costume. And everything he does, it's because he's God. You know, he's tempted, but he never sinned because he was God. He always had all of the Old Testament memorized and could always have the right thing to say because he was God. He never faltered ever because he was God. And there's some truth in that. But we kind of diminish that Jesus was fully human. He had to be fully human. He lived in our place. He lived a perfect life. And here's the thing. If he was fully human, that means he had to limit the expression of some of his divinity. Now, I know that's kind of a big phrase, so let me help explain it maybe with an illustration. I got this from a theologian named Bruce Ware. I thought it was awesome. So imagine in your mind that there is this great kingdom and a super rich, wealthy, strong king. He has it all. He has the best clothes, you know, the designer stuff, the Gucci, the Prada, maybe even some Kirkland signature thrown in there. He has the best food. He has Michelin star chefs making him meals every day. He has bodyguards protecting him from the biggest threats. And one day he's riding in the back of his limo and they go through a part of his kingdom he hasn't been in really, a part that's destitute, poverty stricken. While they're driving through, he looks in the eyes of a beggar on the streets and that image, he can't get it out of his mind. He keeps thinking about it. What is it like to live life as a beggar? What's that like? And so he decides he's going to live life as that beggar. He decides he wants to live day in, day out, as authentically and genuinely as he can as a beggar. And so he takes off the royal garments and he puts on old, tattered, smelly clothes. He goes and lives on the street without a home. And when he was doing this, when he got hungry, he still was the king. He still possessed those kingly qualities and those privileges. He could have clapped his hands and had a chef come and make him a meal when he was hungry. But he couldn't do that if he was to live fully and authentically as a beggar. 
when someone made fun of him or hurled insults at him. He could have had his security team come up instantly and save him and protect him, but he couldn't do that if he wanted to live fully and authentically as a beggar. The king maintained his position, maintained his privileges and rights, but he limited the expression of those to truly experience life as a beggar. And in the same way, Jesus didn't lose any of his divinity. He didn't become less God. He was fully God, but he limited his expression of some of those qualities and some of those attributes while on earth to live authentically and fully as a man. And that is one of the pieces of marvel and majesty and wonder at Christmas time, that Jesus loved us so much that he would do this. And so how does this tie into Christmas? Well, remember that Christmas is about God's presence. You know, we get upset because Christmas seems materialistic. In a lot of ways, it is. You know, marketers have hijacked this holiday, and they've made it all about giving and receiving and what gifts you have. And the wonder and awe we should have with Christmas and about God becoming man is now wonder and awe as we look underneath the Christmas tree, seeing what presents are wrapped in the wrapping paper. And we should be upset about that, the trivialization of Christmas. But at its core, Christianity is materialistic. God made our world and God became man. And this sets us apart, really, because back in John's day is pretty similar to today. So many religions are about transcending out of this human, lowly existence, beating our physical bodies in the world and becoming more spiritual or have a higher level of spirituality. In our world that doesn't believe in God, it's all physical. There's no spiritual. But Christianity says both that we are spiritual, that we are physical, and that Jesus is 100% physical and 100% spiritual. So when you're wrapping those gifts this Christmas, when you're putting them underneath the Christmas tree, maybe you're running last minute to get a gift. I wouldn't recommend Apple on Christmas Eve, by the way. But if that's you, remember that these point to the fact that Christmas is about Christ's presence and the true fact that Christianity is physical. It's material. So we've seen that Christmas takes planning, that Christmas is about presence, and lastly, the third truth that we can refresh with this Christmas is that Christmas gathers family. Christmas gathers family. It was God's plan since sin tried to overthrow the world and his creation to celebrate Christmas. We just saw that Christmas is about God's presence, his act of war is that he became flesh. And now we see why. It's to gather family. Verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now remember, this is speaking about Jesus again. He was the word. He is the light of life. And so it says he came and gives light to everyone. If we were to turn off all the lights here in this room, make it pitch black, you couldn't see what color the trees are, or the candles, or my shirt, or your shirt, we would lose that. But if you had a flashlight and you're shining in around, you could see the true nature of things, the colors, the shapes, where people are sitting. You could see reality. Jesus came into our world to shine a light, to reveal to us the true nature of things, of who we are, of who he is. So Jesus came as the light to all men. 
And then in verse 10, we see he was in the world and the world was made through him. So he came into his creation. And if he shows everyone the true nature of who they are, there's going to be two responses that we see here. The first is rejection. In verse 10, it says, he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, the Jewish people. But overall, they did not receive him. And so John paints a realistic picture of our world. It's a world that is fallen, a world that is tainted by sin and evil. The physical world was made good by God, but it's been marred by sin. And we are in darkness. It's not a nice world that God wants to make nicer. It's a fallen, broken world that God needs to save, that God needs to remake, that God needs to be or have be reborn. And so we see that in verse 9 and 10. But then in verse 12, we see something amazing. It says, but to all who did receive him, there are still some that received him, still a remnant who believed in his name. And this isn't just saying that they believed his name was Jesus. No, it means that they believed in who he said he was, in his character, and who Jesus is. All who received him, who believed in who Jesus is, or believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins so we can have a relationship with God once again. He came to earth to gather us into God's family. Because of sin, we're separated from God and we'll be eternally separated from God unless God acted. God took the initiative. And we see that in verse 13. It says, We gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. It was God's initiative. God rebirthed these people to be in his family. And that's what Christmas is about, God's rescue mission for sinners like me and sinners like you. You know, when you think of the name LeBron James, what comes to mind? Best NBA player, ball hog, overrated. Well, he wants a new title thrown on there, Hope Creator. See, LeBron James partnered with the University of Akron to give 1,100 students a full-ride scholarship as a part of his I Believe program. And I got to hand it to him. It's amazingly generous. That's a huge, great thing that he did there. But can any man or any human program really be called the hope creator? We see that there's only one man who really is the hope creator. John 1 isn't a message on hope. It's the message on the only hope that there is in our world. John 1 tells us that Christmas is that God loves us and loves every person. He reveals himself to us. God isn't just for mystics or some super spiritual people or scholars or professors, but God became man, interacted with all sorts of people. Christmas tells us that we live in a dark world and there's really only one hope. You know, because we've sinned or rebelled against God, there's a punishment for that, death and eventually eternity separated from him in hell. And we can't save ourselves. We can't do something to get out of that. 
God had to come. And that's why Christmas took planning. God planned. He sent his son to dwell among us. And Christmas is about God's presence here on earth, that he lived the perfect life without sin, that he died in our place. He took our punishment on the cross. And three days later, he rose again, defeating death. And that he offers us forgiveness of sin, new life, a new spot in God's family. We believe we're sinners, and we believe he died to save us. That's the hope of Christmas. That offer of salvation is the biggest gift on Christmas. And Christmas is also a season of choice. You know, right now, if you type in food processor on Amazon, you get 640 choices. You type in headphones on Amazon, you get over 10,000 different choices. And choices can be hard and far-reaching and exciting all at the same time. But the biggest choice you make this Christmas isn't going to be over a food processor. It's not going to be over what headphones you really want to buy. Christmas is about choice, and today we have to choose what do we do with the fact that God came to earth to save us from sin? Do we repent? Do we believe in what Jesus has done, or do we continue going our own way? This morning, I urge you, I encourage you, make 2021 the best Christmas yet, where you can truly celebrate Christmas. Joy to the world that Jesus has come to save you from your sin. Believe that today. And for Christians, for those who have believed that message, it's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of the season. But take 15 minutes sometime between now and Saturday. Just sit in the darkness. Maybe you have your tree lit up. Maybe you have a candle lit up. But look at that and remember that Jesus is the light that has come into a dark world. You know, as Christians, we know that God is trying to shape our character, mold us to be more and more like Jesus, to have the same desires. Like we learned in Matthew, he desires a heart that's righteous, not just righteous actions. But we trivialize all that if we don't first deeply reflect on what it means for God to come and save us, for God to become flesh, to have heart, lungs, blood, skin, to experience agony and suffering in obedience for the first time ever, to die on the cross for our sins, the most brutal way you can die, and raise again, all because he loves us and wanted to be with us in God's family. So believe that message today. Celebrate that, that he came among us, and have a very merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that is Christmas, a message that some of us have heard many, many times, maybe every year of our lives, but a message that never ceases to be any less amazing. Father, I pray that this year, that we could truly worship you, we could have wonder and awe at the fact that you came and dwelled among us, that you lived for us here on earth. I pray that we'd be able to celebrate and truly enjoy the Christmas season, remembering that it takes planning, that it's about presence, and that now we are a part of your family for those who believe. For those listening this morning in person or online who haven't put their faith in the work of Jesus, I pray 
that you would change their hearts, that you'd work on their hearts, on their minds. I pray that they would come to have faith in Christ today, this season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.